Hi, this is CognitionX's podcast series where we look at the impact of AI and emerging technology on industry, government and society. I'm Charlie Muirhead. And I'm Tabitha Goldstorp. And this episode is a CogX Festival special. In June 2019, we were honoured to bring together 20,000 visitors who came to hear from over 600 speakers across 12 stages in the heart of King's Cross. Our mission is to bring clarity and help ensure responsible deployment and really move the conversation forward. We believe that AI has enormous opportunity for everybody, business, society, the planet. But only 12% of people think that technology has helped society. We won't reap the benefits of AI if we don't avoid the risks of AI. Organizations and individuals developing, deploying, or operating AI systems should be held accountable for their proper functioning. In this episode, Astro Teller, the captain of Moonshots at X, talks with his friend and senior advisor, Julie Hanna, executive chairwoman of Kiva, about what's really needed to ensure that tech is good for the world and what they're doing at X, formerly Google X, in order to make sure that that happens. We get a proper insight into what's going on in the Moonshot factory. I loved it. I hope you will too. This content was originally recorded at COGX19 on the Impact Stage, sponsored by HSBC. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Julie Hanna. I'm uh, executive chair of the board at Kiva, an investor at Obvious Ventures, and an advisor to X, which is formerly known as Google X, Alphabet's Moonshot Factory. And with me is Astro Teller, the uh, captain of Moonshots. Um, we're going to be talking about how to create and scale radical ideas that are good for the world. Um, and this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart because I've long, uh, my relationship with technology has long believed that technology and business are our most important instruments for solving humanity's most pressing challenges. And I know we share that, um, particularly at a time when um, the technologies that we've created have created some of our most radical problems. This seems like a, a, a prescient uh, conversation. So um, there's a lot of... Uh, X is a very fascinating and intriguing place. There's also a mystique about it. So maybe a good place to start would be to talk about what X is and why the world needs a moonshot factory. Thanks, Julie. Um... I guess it's probably up to the world to decide whether it needs a moonshot factory, but I'll say why we're <laughs> making one. X is the part of Alphabet whose job it is to make new Alphabet businesses. So we're very small relative to the size of Alphabet, but our product is not a thing that we would go sell in the world, but a new business if we're successful, a moonshot that could become, hopefully, another alphabet business. So Waymo, the self-driving car company, uh, Glass, uh, Google Brain. Uh, I think there are a number of uh, people from Google Brain here in, uh, at CogX. Uh, Verily, the life science business, Wing, Loon, these are the names of some of the projects that started as moonshots, as explorations at X and have gone on to become uh, substantive pieces of the larger alphabet uh, family. So that's what X is, is a place where we try to um, look or explore over the horizon, come up with something that's very good for the world, that hopefully will also make money for alphabet and to the extent that we are successful in finding one of those things, then we can package it up and hand it to Alphabet as a uh, exciting new opportunity. 
Yeah, and I think one of the parts of your thesis that I think is, is uh, particularly striking is um, that you start with a problem first, and a problem that affects a billion people or more, rather than starting with tech first. And um, so you kind of have, you begin with scale in mind from the get-go, um, but there's some counterintuitive wisdom about how you actually get to that scale, particularly in the early stages, that um, I think is particularly um, relevant given that a lot of where the products that we've unleashed on the world um, have uh, and have sort of had some unintended consequences as they've scaled that we we did not anticipate kind of the early stages so um you know the talk a little bit about that framework of the radical breakthrough the the, the technology and sort of the the business model and and how you harmonize those uh, from a purpose-driven and profit perspective sure so uh, we have a couple different mechanisms at x for trying to help guide everyone at x to explore in areas that we'll be excited about later. And so we use these three interlocking circles as a way to remind people of what we're looking for. And so we're interested in things that are at the intersection of these three uh, elements. The first is finding a huge problem with the world that you can name and you want to fix. The second is finding a science fiction sounding product or service that however unlikely it is that we could actually make it, if we could make it, it would make that huge problem go away. And then you have to, third, be able to say, here's the breakthrough technology that makes that radical proposed solution to the problem possible, even if not yet likely. Let's go try it. So the first thing, as you were observing, is nowhere in that uh, triumvirate of requirements does it say, must make a lot of money. And people say, well, hold on, there has to be like a secret other requirement, which is make lots of money. No. If you're doing something which is solving a huge problem, I challenge you to solve a huge problem in the world and not get paid for it. This happens all the time at X. I've got a great idea for the world, but we won't get paid anything for it. I don't believe you. I don't believe that the world is wired so that you could solve a huge problem in the world and that some of the value that we're producing for the world won't come back to us in some fair way. And we don't need to know what that is on day one. We're willing to trust that that's the case. So that's the purpose side of X. The flip side is, and people say, oh, so we could just do anything that's good for the world even if it loses money. Now, I'm not sure that counts as solving a huge problem for the world. Things that lose money tend to get smaller over time, and things that make money tend to get bigger over time. And so my belief is, our belief at X is, that if you really want to fix a huge problem in the world, it needs to make money, because things that make money will propagate, and things that don't make money will wither on the vine. And so profit is, in fact, the wind beneath the wings for the purpose that you're hoping to create in the world. Yeah, it's, you know, we t we've talked about purpose and profit, I think, a, a lot over the years. And 
it, I find it fascinating and disconcerting that, that, that purpose and profit have been pitted against each other, kind of viewed as dualistic extremes. Um, we, and uh, um, you've made the point that if you take the long view, right, sort of that purpose and profit harmonize quite well, and, and really what you're touching on is this notion of kind of enduring value creation. So if you, if you create value over the long term, um, <clears throat> one will be able to capture some of that value, which is the profit. And um, it's, what's interesting is in tech, we trust that we're going to figure out our business models if we find a way to grow and capture users, um, because we equate that with creating value. Um, but when you talk about purpose, there tends to be this worry, oh, but we haven't figured out how to make money. And so I, I, I do agree with you that <clears throat> if you figured out how to create value, um, generally, you'll be able to capture some of that value. And if you don't, a lot of times that's a failure of imagination around business model innovation. So like, if you think about what we've sort of pioneered in Silicon Valley, it's innovation on many levels, not just at the tech or the product level, but also distribution mechanisms and business models. And when those harmonize and align, then you get kind of these outsized sort of um, uh, opportunities uh, with the companies that get built. So um, the we talked about a lot about responsible innovation as well, and uh, you you've made the point. Hey, it, I prefer lasting innovation, or kind of what I think of as enduring innovation, because um, it, implicit in that is not that you have a one-time responsibility, but you have an ongoing responsibility for what you've unleashed into the world. And I, I really think that's a very powerful frame, and I think it'd be great for for the audience to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm I'm a little suspicious of certain terms around responsible innovation, like the term responsible innovation, not because I don't want innovation to be responsible, but because I don't want the current moral math that we do to justify any possible later outcome of the thing. Whatever it is you're making, the more interesting it is, the more over the horizon you're shooting, the less you can accurately predict what the impact is that the thing that you're building is really going to have on the world. So talking about responsible innovation is potentially a bit of a siren song where it, it lulls us into this belief that we're responsible because we've done all the math with what we can see today. When the real thing that we should be held to is lasting innovation. That is, when the dust settles and we look backward from 10, 20, 30 years from now on the thing that we're introducing to the world and all of the pivots that we've had to do along the way to help it be great for the world, how are we judged then? That's what we should be optimizing for. And as soon as you sign up for that, for lasting innovation, then it becomes a lot more possible to say, we don't know right now, which we don't, nobody does, how this thing that we're making is going to fare in the world. So what's really important is that we have ways of moving it out into the world that are responsible, each step is responsible, and that we can learn from the, our sort of failure modes as they, they appear without actually hurting anyone in the process, and then change this thing so that it can, by the end of its life cycle, be seen as something that was really great for society. Yeah, and I think the, the, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but, you know, this idea of responsible innovation has come from um, 
really a reaction to irresponsible experimentation. And we didn't think of it as irresponsible, but I mean, when I came to Silicon Valley 25 years ago, you know, the ethos was change the world. And there was a very sincere and audacious belief. And, and then it became the battle cry for tech. Um, and then more recently, it's become a bit of a cynical cliche, right? And part of that is because we, we sort of viewed the world as we were running these giant experiments on the world, and we always thought, well, hey, it's bits, and we can always change the bits if we don't get it uh, right. Let's just throw our products out there. But what we're seeing is, as bits go, so do atoms, that our digital lives are shaping our physical lives, um, and more so society at large. And so it's begging this kind of larger question of, how can we proactively and then iteratively um, understand the choice consequences and unintended consequences? And, and what, what you're speaking to um, reminds me of um, something that indigenous peoples have actually kind of held as a core philosophy, which is when they'd make choices, they would think about the impact of those choices on seven generations beyond. And that, I think, stands in stark contrast with our sort of experiment and fix it later mentality, and I think we're, we're sort of going through a reckoning around that. Um, let's um, shift gears a little bit because I think um, you know a lot of the public conversation right now has been um, very philosophical, um, and so I think uh, maybe what might be useful uh, because I know you've instrumented a lot of these things at X, X is to go from the where the philosophical rubber meets reality's road, if you will. Um, the, the team at X calls you a cultural engineer, um, and, I, and I've seen you kind of hack the organizational mindset in a number of ways to really uh, inject that kind of long-term thinking. Um, and one of the things you talk about is sandboxing and getting kind of real-time feedback loops in, in the real world. Um, maybe you can elaborate a little bit about how you, how you think about that. Sure. So some of the organizational design is very explicit. I just gave this example with these three circles where go make a lot of money isn't listed in the sort of mission statement of the business nor in these these three circles and, and how they intersect. But some of them are uh, more kind of in the meat of how we do things. One of them is we say that we're going to be um, audacious, but we recognize that we're going to be wrong almost all the time. As soon as you sign up for that, then how are we going to learn? We're going to have to go test it. Certain tests can be done in the lab, but mostly you have to start getting out in the world in thoughtful ways in order to learn from that. And so these things naturally follow where getting out in the world and testing what we're doing, knowing that we're not done, so there's no point waiting till we're done to put it out in the world because we've already signed up for the idea that we don't know what the right answer is. So now I'm taking something to the world, I'm expecting it not to work, and so I'm gonna be a little extra cautious and a little extra safe about how I do that because I'm expecting it to have at least one failure mode. The whole point of putting it out there is not to win or do a victory lap or make a lot of money, but to learn. So I'll get it out there earlier, and as soon as we're doing that, that takes us down this path towards being um, innovative in a way that will last because we're part, we're going through this cycle that feels natural and doesn't have a natural end, which is we're always learning, how's it working, what is the world saying to us, 
And because it's only half done, I'm not saying, I just slaved over this thing for five years, I spent all my money, it's done now, would you, you know, Mr. Regulator, you, Jane Doe, the public, would you just please say you love this? And I need you to say you love this because I'm done and I don't have any more money. Of course, we're naturally antagonistic now. Whereas if I say, this is half done, I know it's not right. I'm trying to go over there with this thing. What do you think? Now we're on the same side that the public, the thought leaders, the regulators, and us at X are all trying together to go over there and solve that huge problem with the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've taken this potentially antagonistic one-time shot and turned it into a collaborative, repeated process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and also there's a counterintuitive wisdom and interesting in how when, you know, thinking about macro level scale, mass scale, but starting in a micro scale way. And that, that was certainly our experience at Kiva. You know, when we stumbled into inventing the crowdfunding model, it literally began with one person on the ground in Uganda, a Ugandan fishmonger. Um, um, her name is Elizabeth Amala, and I think of her as the godmother of crowdfunding, but it was one $500 loan to her, crowdsourced by five people that ignited the, um, the possibility of what now are billions of dollars that are going to millions of people. Um, and what was interesting was, is that when you, you can figure out a whole life cycle of impact in a very small scale way before you try to scale. And I think a lot of where we get into trouble is when we try to scale something out of the gate by dropping it on the world because distribution is so easy. Um, and that discipline to sort of contain something and understand it through its entire life cycle uh, before you scale it um, gets a lot of that discovery out of the way. Um, another thing that... Um, I find really fascinating about the culture at X and how you've instrumented it is, is that really just a fierce commitment to diversity and inclusion at all stages of the life cycle. And you know, the, there's a very kind of large and growing public conversation around how the absence of diversity and inclusion um, has resulted in products that aren't good for the world. Um, you know, we were just talking earlier about. Um, Apple's release a few years ago of um, an app that was sort of a quantifiable self app that measured, um, I think the, the declaration was it measures everything that matters. And then half the population said, but hey, what about measuring menstrual cycle? Like you forgot about that. Um, and kind of an oops moment after the fact, rather than if there had been more diversity at the table creating it, that wouldn't have been oversight or crash test dummies, which for decades it took um, uh, to get car companies to test on crash test dummies that were women, um, that were small size. And meanwhile, women and children were dying and being injured at much higher rates um, than men. So um, it would be great to just hear sort of how you have enacted some of uh, those philosophies around diversity and inclusion. Um, and I know that's a very important value from your perspective. So I think it'd be great for people to hear from that as well. I really like these these aspects of designing an organization that have multiple different payoffs. So I'm going to describe two very practical payoffs in a second. But secretly, even though this isn't maybe sadly what moves society, just solving diversity in our business and across society, it's just the right thing to do. 
And that might not be a business reason to do it, but it makes me feel really good in, in the evenings. The second reason is, if you're a creativity factory, which is what X is, we are less an engineering organization that tries to jam some creativity in afterwards so much as a creativity organization that tries to use engineering as an important part of how it paints and creates the things that it does. You need different perspectives. Perspective shifting, finding a new perspective on the problem you're working on, is the entire game we're playing. How could we possibly do that with a limited set of perspectives in our building? So entirely from a we want to win perspective, that by itself would justify, even leaving the social justice issues aside, us solving the diversity problem for ourselves. The more diverse the people we have in our building are, the more different perspectives they come from, the better we will be as a group at perspective shifting. It happens that we get a third benefit out of diversity, which also by itself would probably justify what we're doing. I don't believe that ethics is some kind of after-the-fact thing that you can slap onto your business. You can't say, you, you're going to go make the products, and then you, you'll try to force these people to be reasonable and thoughtful about the products that they make. That's just not going to function very well. What if we all were to make things and we all were to try to practice thinking through lasting innovation and how this is actually going to feel and land in society? But if we're going to do that, then the more voices uh, we have at the table, the more perspectives we have at the table, the fewer blind spots we will have as an organization for how the rest of the world is going to experience us. If everybody is a white man with a beard, then I'm sure we would end up missing a bunch of examples like the ones that you just gave, whereas if there are, for example, are women at the table, then someone, before it gets out in public, can say, you know, we might be missing something here. And so rather than having it be a sort of board of directors kind of level finger-wagging ethics, but to infuse the organization with those voices helps the sort of lasting innovation be a natural part of what we're doing. Yeah, it really speaks to that. I mean, it, this sounds blindingly obvious when you, when you hear it, but that you can't really fully understand a problem if you don't have the people affected by a problem at the table from the get-go. And yet we, we sort of have normalized the world where we rarely have the people affected by the problem at the table. And so this kind of a, it, one of those things that sounds obvious when you hear it, but it's kind of a revelation for the way that we work. Um, there's, there's some fun and interesting examples of how diversity uh, and inclusion have played out in a projects at X. And, um, the uh, the loon um, is is one that comes to mind. Um, it would be great to kind of just bring it to life with that example. Sure, uh, there actually are or other a, a variety of different. Even within loon, I'm not sure which one you're you're thinking of, but I'll give you two quick examples. Okay. One is that we, as we are testing stratospheric balloons to try to bring internet connectivity to the half of the world that doesn't have internet connectivity, our balloons are staying up for longer and longer periods of time, but occasionally they do fall out of the sky. And when they do, we go get them. We're not just going to leave them wherever they land. But 
they land in pretty uh, unusual places, pretty usually very far away from people kind of places, up the top of trees, up the top of mountains, in the middle of deserts. And so we need a group of people who can go get those things, just physically not hurt themselves going to get those things. They can have the technical background to gather up what they need and bring it back safely so we can do failure analysis on it. We also want to make sure that they have the diplomacy necessary to talk to anyone who they'll see along the way and say, did anything bad happen? How can we help rectify a fence if it like landed on a fence and, and hurt it? And it turns out that veterans are excellent at doing this. So that particular group, it's, we certainly don't require that everyone is a veteran, but it happens that there are a bunch of like special forces and Marines who are part of our ops team that goes and collects these balloons. Another example, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it's the one you were thinking of, but we have a fashion designer yeah. who works on the balloon design. So the balloon is the size of a house. It's thinner than a trash bag. It needs to cost as little as possible, but it has to be built with a kind of bridge-like architecture for distributing the forces, which are very slight on any particular part of it, but huge across this thing, which is the size of a house, distributing these forces to particular places on the material where, where the forces can be held in tension. And it turns out that working from an engineering perspective on fabric was something that no one really in the world knew how to do, and we've had to do a lot of innovating on it. And one of the people who's been particularly helpful to us had a career beforehand as a fashion designer, which is the sort of thing we didn't pre-pick her for that reason, but the fact that we pick people who have really varied backgrounds made it a little bit more likely that we turned out to have someone on the team who could jump in and help and is now one of the main balloon designers for us. Yeah, yeah, I love that example. Um, and, and also just, <clears throat> I think the, the, scale, the, the scale problems that address kind of um, uh, things that are good for the world at scale, it, implicit in that um, uh, is that it, we're really talking about for the many, not just the few. And I say it that way because uh, a lot of what we've ended up creating in tech and, and certainly in Silicon Valley um, has been uh, tended to focus on in our problems in our own backyard with the, the, the faith and the trust that if it's good for us, it's good for everyone as Silicon Valley, go, so goes the world. Um, you've made the point that a point that's very near and dear to me as as an immigrant, as a refugee, as someone who sort of come, came from the, the the many, not the few. Um, and I thought a lot about kind of the that technology in many ways can be the most democratizing force in the history of humankind if we aim it towards that end, but we really have to have that intention. You've talked about how Silicon Valley is a terrible place to test your ideas um, if you are doing something at scale and that getting out of that bubble is really important. And I know that um, one of the more fun examples was with the, the, the project with the monkeys, uh, sort of discovering kind of what happens when you put your stuff in the real world. So I think maybe it'd be great to just hear more from you on that, including that example. Sure. Uh, she, Julie's partly referencing for years, I would say to X over and over again, work on the hardest parts of the problem first. Work on the hardest parts of the problem first. And it never totally landed, or maybe partially landed. 
And then as a joke in a, an event like this, I was describing to somebody and I said, look, if you were trying to teach a monkey to stand on the top of a 10-foot pedestal and recite Shakespeare, should you teach the monkey first or should you build the pedestal first? And for some reason that connected with the people at X. So at least internally at X, they, people say hashtag monkey first as their way of like reminding each other to work on the hard parts first. You can always build the pedestal later if the monkey's speaking Shakespeare. And if the monkey's uh, not speaking Shakespeare yet, you're not de-risking your, your project at all by building the pedestal. And so we have these boxes that are about this big, free space optics boxes that shoot lasers up to 20 kilometers to another box so you can basically connect an unconnected village and give it up to 20 gigabits per second. And one of the problems that we've had as we've started to roll these out in India is that, A, once you bolt them to a pole, the monkeys jump up and down on them. That was slightly foreseeable. We didn't actually foresee it, but I guess in retrospect we should have seen that one coming. The weirder one still is that the monkeys are extremely territorial, and so if you go up the pole when they're not on the pole and then you put one of these on, it's okay. The monkeys will leave you alone, but if they're already on the pole and you go up the pole to put these things on, it's really dangerous for the people who are installing these, these laser boxes on. So that's become a thing they have to do is like, don't go up the pole till the monkeys come down. <laughs> and no one is going to write down in their sort of unit tests for this thing works now, make sure not to go up the pole till the monkeys come down. Like that's just not gonna be in the list of things to do. That's why you have to get out in the real world early before you're done because that's where the real learning happens. That's part of the uh, usability manual now. Yeah, sort exactly. of. <laughs> Um, well, I think we're um, at time, so um, Astro, I always find these conversations enriching and enlightening, and, and today is, is uh, no exception, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode compelling, there are three things we'd love you to do. One our podcast series so you don't miss another episode and please share it with your friends number two if you want to experience cogex yourself go to cogex.co and register so you hear about next year's event and number three if you have any other questions you would like to ask anybody in the community don't forget to register on cognitionx.com and ask a question on the global knowledge network thanks for listening and let's keep moving the conversation forward together